Thomas and I have the great privilege of being Dean of UNSW Business School. I'd like to welcome you all, alumni, staff, students, friends and special guests to a very special Meet the CEO, the first we are delivering virtually. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Bejigal people that are the traditional custodians of the land which I am speaking to you from today. I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that we meet on wherever we may be across the country and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are part of the UNSW community. One of the great opportunities of switching to digital platforms this year is that a much greater number of alumni and other members of the UNSW network across Australia and globally have been able to be part of our events. This means that our commitment to provide ongoing lifelong learning experiences to alumni has never had greater reach and impact, something we are truly delighted about. Indeed, for this Meet the CEO, we've had over 2,200 registrations, which is triple the amount we usually have. But I'm sure it's not just the platform that has led to so much interest in today's event, as it's our great pleasure today to meet Matt Common, CEO and Managing Director at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, someone who I know we'll learn a great deal from as we hear about his leadership journey. Matt will be interviewed by our regular interrogator, Mark Scott AO, Secretary for the New South Wales Department of Education and member of the Business School's Advisory Council. I'd like at this point on behalf of all of us to thank both Matt and Mark for taking time out from their extremely busy day and probably evening jobs to spend time with us today. Uh, both will be joining us shortly. Just a note that today's conversation will be recorded and made public following the live stream. If you do need to leave early, the good news is that the link to the recording will be emailed out to everyone who registered in the next couple of days, and will, it'll also be made available on the UNSW website. Could I also take the opportunity to thank those who sent in questions for Matt prior to today. We had an overwhelming response, well over 100 questions. So we'll do our best to cover as many as possible in the conversation today. There'll also be an opportunity to engage with the conversation by sending in your questions through our live Q&A chat function during today's event. It's now my great pleasure to welcome a great supporter of the Meet the CEO series, David Gonski, AC Chancellor of UNSW Sydney, who will introduce both Matt and Mark. Thank you, Chris, and a warm welcome to everyone joining us for today's first Virtual Meet the CEO. I love these um, Meet the CEOs, and I, in the 14 straight 15 years I've been Chancellor, I don't think I've missed more than one. And today's one is going to be outstanding, because today we've got both a wonderful CEO and also an outstanding inquisitor, um, who I'll introduce in a minute. Today, as was said earlier, we have, we're very lucky to have Matt Komen with us. All of you know that Matt is CEO and Managing Director at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Although relatively young, Matt already has 20 years in banking behind him across institutional, retail, and indeed wealth management. And he has occupied many and numerous senior leadership roles since joining the CBA in 1999. What interests me perhaps even more is the broadness of Matt. And you'll see this from the fact that first, he's chairman of the ABA at the moment. He's on the board of directors of UNICEF Australia. And above all, from my point of view, he's a proud UNSW graduate. He did a lot of research in preparing for this. And as far as I know, 
He is the first UNSW graduate to occupy the CEO ship, if there is such a word, of one of the big four banks in Australia. And we congratulate him. He has a Master of Commerce and also, perhaps a little more surprisingly, a Bachelor of Aviation from our university. I've already warned Mark Scott not to make any obvious cracks that a Bachelor of Aviation sends you to the skies in terms of the corporate world. He's also been at the University of Sydney, got an MBA, and is a graduate of the Harvard Business School's General Management Program. We're very proud to be associated with Matt, and I'm positive we're in for a wonderful period uh, through this interview. Mark Scott is our, our normal interview and outstanding. I mark what Mark does each time. And every time I ring him and say that was his best, and I have absolutely no doubt I'll be ringing him again. He brings um, from his day job as Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, great intellect and great resources in thinking. He's been a long-standing helper and involved with our university. And again, we're very proud to be associated with him. And we awarded him an honorary doctorate in 2016 for all the services he's done. Well, you didn't come to listen to me, so I welcome Matt and Mark and look forward to listening. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chancellor. And Matt, welcome to Meet the CEO, our first virtual lunchtime event. And we know that there'll be many people all across the state and all across the country who'll be uh, tuning in to this conversation. We're going to have a chat for uh, a period of time. Numbers of questions have been sent in. We look forward to getting to those questions and more can be sent in uh, using the chat function on the video stream today. I want to start where the Chancellor ended. Uh, you studied aviation. Now, we've all heard about high-flying bank executives. You're the real thing. Why did you decide to study aviation? Um, actually, because it, it was a new course. It was, I think it was starting up the year I was coming out of school and looking to go to university. My mum was a doctor. Sorry, my dad was a doctor. My mum's an accountant, and I wanted to do something different. Uh, and there was a lot of flexibility in that uh, particular degree. And so that, that's what prompted me to take it up. And did you ever really consider a career in aviation? Was that a prospect for you? What did you learn from the career? It, it, there's multiple paths that you can go down. So I took more of the commercial path. So, I mean, I was interested in the sector, but as I got more into it, it sort of a broad-based both science and commerce degree. And then as I got more into it, I guess I became uh, more interested in and around uh, business and I actually started working at the bank before I'd started doing the Master of Commerce. And my, my first boss at CBA, a fabulous person called Mal Stott, he was specifically looking to hire people who didn't have a banking finance uh, background. Um, you, your father died when you were young and, and your mother retrained as an accountant and built her own uh, tax practice. What did you learn from her growing up and, and the way that she trained and operated as a businesswoman? Yeah, it's obviously a very difficult time and I think you appreciate it even more. I've got three kids of my own now and I think about, I was six years old, my, my sister was 18 months older than me and you really appreciate how hard and how lonely it is as a single parent. Um, I mean, a lot of my memories, she, as you said, she, she trained as an accountant, she started her own business and she used to work from home. And she worked extremely hard. 
So she was always there for school events, for sporting events, but she would work uh, really from sort of seven in the morning till 10 at night, sort of seven days a week. So I, I grew up, I think, very grateful for her hard work. And I watched and admired uh, how much effort she put into that and, frankly, the sacrifices that she she made. Uh, you know, a big part of my motivation has been you know, trying to repay some of that because I feel like I certainly uh, owe a lot uh, to my mum. Do you think it's given you insight? You've spent a lot of your time in retail side of banking. Do you think watching your mother's given you insight into, in this particular, small business people who you've been providing services to? Yeah, look, I think we're all shaped a lot by the experiences that we either have sort of growing up or in, in you know, professional and personal. So I, I'm sure one of many, but absolutely, there's a lot of things that I take out of that, a lot of sort of empathy and understanding and appreciation for, you know, for how hard it is and the different challenges that people face. And at, at various points in time, we all either personally or professionally have extremely difficult uh, setbacks. And it's all about, you know, the way that you recover from those setbacks and you know I, when I was a kid I don't remember my mum ever being uh, down or despondent or whereas the reality must have been you know extremely hard and obviously I didn't talk to her about it when I was six years old but I, but I have since uh, and I guess it's made my appreciation even greater and I think that that empathy uh, certainly does help um, to understand uh, as you said what, what faces and challenges uh, are there for small businesses. When you landed at the Commonwealth Bank, you, you, you started up with Comsec, you know, led by Paul Ricard, and I think founded by Paul. And, and it was the time when a migration to online broking was, was, was really just growing. What, what insights did your Comsec experience on recruitment into the bank give you into consumers and also into the potential of technology in banking services? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky, Mark, that I, I joined basically in the equity product group as a business analyst in the institutional banking division. And Comsec was a few years old and, and Paul, who I'm still in touch with, has, had started that. We, we basically worked on developing new products and projects and sort of a combination of things that I learned watching the, obviously the explosive growth of Comsec. But actually my first project was working on uh, online car insurance. It was sort of in the late nineties, you could see one thought you could sort of add everything online and it would be an instant success. And so, I was working on an actuarial model for ratings of insurance, uh, pretty much none of which I had any background or understanding in. So, I mean, and I learned a lot about technology. I did a lot of technology uh, projects. And I was really fortunate because of the people that I was working for, and they made huge investments in me over many years. And I got to work in a part of the group that, you know, we were making investments. There were a lot of, uh, you know, technology uh, changes. We saw sort of huge scale and growth. And so you're lucky when you get the opportunity to work in an organisation that's doing a lot of new and interesting and at scale things and you're surrounded or you're working for people who you know, are very good leaders who are very generous with their, with their time. You know, um, as, as we've heard, you, you started the bank um, early on, uh, even before graduation. But by the time you were 30, you were running Comsec. Were you conscious of being uh, young in leadership roles and did you feel well prepared and equipped for the kind of leadership roles that came at you early in your career? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I probably did. I think when I went into the Comsec role at that stage, 
uh, and it was a, a step up in terms of the number of uh, people in particular that I was leading. You know, at various points in time, you, you do either feel young and, and or perhaps, um, you know, not entirely prepared for you know, the situation, the scenario, but also working through that gives you a lot of confidence because inevitably you face different challenges professionally and, you know, not everything you will have been able to do before, but actually working through some difficult situations, uh, you know, particularly early on, which I think is really helpful. I, you know, I, I'm very lucky that I was given enormous opportunities at, at, the, at the bank over many years um, and I was able to get a lot of experienced units, you know, in, in good times and bad. And you know, Comsec, I was running sort of during the best bull market and then obviously into um, the, the GFC. Uh, and so that's sort of the combination of the experiences make it uh, a hugely developmental uh, opportunity. Did you feel that you were you know, systematically, in a sense, targeted and developed by the bank, that you were on a development path, that you were being groomed for senior leadership? And not, not specifically. I think if it's done well inside a large organisation, you don't necessarily see, obviously, everything that's going on. Uh, I'm very you know, grateful, and there's a couple of people in particular. I mean, the role, before I did ComSec, I worked on a large technology uh, project, and I'd actually come out of technology. I remember I was working uh, in different parts of the markets division, and my boss's boss at the time sat down to me and said, look, I really want you to, to do this project. And I sort of said, look, I don't really, I don't really want to. Uh, and his response was, you know, we've known each other well. He invested a lot of time in me. And he sort of said, look, I really want you to do it. You really don't have a choice. But I know that you trust me so that you know, you'll do it. And he so it was the right, absolutely the right advice and the right call. Um, and I've been in a number of different situations where I've you know, been given those opportunities. And then obviously as you progress through an organisation, you can feel more of the targeted uh, development uh, at an individual level. And so I think early on, you, you know that the practices and the processes are there because they are and they are today. If done well, it should be a little invisible uh, as well to the, you know, the, the right balance. You want people to know that they're well-regarded and uh, they're seen as high potential, um, but it needs to be done in, in, a, you know, in a particular and deliberate way. One of the, the, the challenges you were given was to be put in charge of the bank's response to the storm financial uh, collapse, which we and where you know pretty serious allegations were were put at CBA for their management and involvement in that process. Um, what did you learn from being thrown into the into that crisis and asked to kind of unpick and unravel that and help restore the bank's reputation on the back of that? Yeah, I mean, a lot. I, I pretty much spent all of 2009. Uh, and I mean, I asked to do it. And, you know, at the time, quite a few people were saying to me, well, why would you want, why would you want to do that? Um, it turned out again, I think, fortunately, it was, as you said, it was a very difficult set of circumstances, but huge uh, development opportunity, everything from, you know, I think there was something like 30 law firms involved. Uh, there were multiple class actions, you know, I faced Five, six hundred investors who lost their life savings. I spent hours on stage talking <clears throat> to them. I mean, I got to know some of the, the customers. The, the first time I had appeared in a 
parliamentary inquiries. So I went through a couple of those, which uh, unfortunately has become uh, a capability that you need if you work uh, in banking. <clears throat> I got to work closely with the CEO, Ralph, uh, Ian as well, and I really got to know some of the board and, and board members. So, I mean, when you look at that, the, the real dangers of uh, leverage in particular, and so for people who don't know, CBA provided a lot of the products, we didn't provide the financial advice, and that's not okay. I mean, that was we didn't understand the investment advice that people were getting, but effectively people were being leveraged twice over, so they're putting, you know, effectively drawing down on their home loan, then taking a margin line investing in the market, which was fine because the market kept going up, but then of course the market came down. The leverage wiped people out. And I remember after that, the um, I was doing, I was actually hosting uh, with sort of 600 customers. And it, it goes to show, I mean, there was a lot of advice internally at the time, don't go, uh, because it was actually being hosted by one of the um, class action law firms. And I actually thought that they were, you know, had, were handling themselves well, well and, and I thought they had in integrity. And so I trusted them. And to their credit, there weren't, you know, the media weren't there. There weren't TV cameras. But they were very sort of fair and balanced uh, when I arrived. But I could, as you probably imagine, it was a pretty hostile environment. Um, I was there with one other person. We we booked a, uh, a taxi to come pick us up at about nine thirty. We were supposed to get, we got on stage at six. I think we finished because I thought I'd just stay right to the end. I think we finished about uh, eleven thirty, and we kind of came out. Obviously, the taxi was long gone. And uh, I was sort of looking around because it was about 20 k's out of Brisbane. And one of the customers said, um, would you like a lift? We, you know, we're going past the city, I think I was staying at Sofitel. And so we, you know, I was talking to them. And to me, it was a really, you know, they were very pleasant. They absolutely blamed the bank. They were really upset with us. But they were very, um, you know, sort of understanding about their own story. They'd lost their life savings. You know, they were in their mid-60s, uh, you know, same age as my mum. They'd lost everything. And um, he was trying to do some work as a, in part-time in a subway store. And I think, you know, when you see it up close, and I think it's a real advantage of being, you know, hands-on and actually seeing and meeting the customers, you know, you get a real appreciation of, you know, of the dangers of debt and leverage. And when, you know, things go wrong, unfortunately, in, in, in banking, the implications at a personal level or at a business level can be can be really severe. I want to come back to uh, address some of those themes um, which also emerged in your time running the retail banking for CBA. But before that, after you did that work um, around Storm Financial, you talked about getting to work with Ralph Norris. You decided to leave and uh, you headed off to Morgan Stanley. Your career was going so well at CBA why did you think um, that was an opportune time for you to, to head elsewhere? And tell us what then happened. Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, I mean, my logic at the time, and look, I spent about that stage 10 years in the bank, and I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I had some great opportunities. I've got to, and I really respected the leaders uh, in the organisation. I sort of felt that I was at that time of, um, you know, perhaps looking to go and do some work uh, internationally, going and working in another sort of scale uh, employer. And it's nothing, I don't want the story all to be about Morgan Stanley. They're a very fine institution. 
But I actually felt I was quite sad when I was leaving. And maybe all people do when you spend 10 years, but I, I definitely was sad. And I mean, I'll give you sort of both sides of the story. When I, when I was leaving, I was actually sitting in this uh, room that I'm in now because Ralph was uh, CEO then. It was slightly differently configured. And I was sort of sitting on the other side and, you know, he was disappointed, understandably. And um, I remember I made made the mistake of saying something like, um, I explained my rationale, but you know, maybe one day I'd come back. And, and quite understandably, he said something like, you, know, you won't be coming back. You know, you've, you've had a lot of opportunities in the organisation. Uh, and he wasn't angry, but I think he was just genuinely disappointed, uh, which I completely understood and, again, made me feel even worse than I already did. Uh, but I was probably you know, somewhere in the order of five months in, and I actually happened to, I had a pre-scheduled uh, lunch with Ian that set up Narev uh, uh, months before. And we were literally catching up in the city. And we were just talking. I didn't have anything in the back of my mind. And I started talking to him about things. And he said, well, why don't you just come back? And I said, oh, I can't. I mean, I couldn't. And then he sort of said, look, uh, I said, oh, look, I, I'm, you know, frankly, I'm not sure that, Ralph would be too happy about that. And he said, well, you know, I'll, I'll talk to Ralph. And so he calls me 20 minutes after lunch, says, you know, Ralph will see you tomorrow morning at 7.30. And so I was again sitting back in this office and I remember him coming out through the sliding door that comes into this room. And uh, I was, you know, I was pretty nervous. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And he, he asked me a question and I started explaining and I could see he had a little, uh, like slight, slight smile on his face. And so I thought um, I was going to be, I was going to be okay. And that he was, he's fantastic to me and uh, made me feel very welcome. It's not, it's certainly not a traditional career move uh, to leave after 10 years and then be back uh, within about you know, nine months. Um, but look, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. I, you know, I've, I've loved every, I loved every minute of the first 10 years and I've done another 10 years in the organisation. I'm so, like, I'm very grateful for both the professional but also just the life experience that I've had uh, at CBF. I, I think one of the things, things that many of those watching the, um, the MBA graduates and the like may, may often think that they need to move to advance, that, that really career trajectory is all about leveraging off opportunities and you do that by moving around how much time do you invest in talent management and thinking about your high potentials and providing them with career trajectory within cba so they don't actually have to go elsewhere to advance yeah i mean a lot and there's a lot of that wisdom i certainly don't blame anyone else except myself but part of my thinking was you know, 10 years, and I still hear this occasionally now, like maybe I'm going to be institutionalised and I really need to be able to demonstrate that I can be successful in another organisation. But the reality is at CBA, the bank had changed so many times, even in the 10 years uh, that I've been here. So, I mean, it's incredibly important. And look, there's there's going to be, um, you know, different solutions that, that fit people, but the talent development, I mean, right the way through the organisation is so important, right the way through from graduates and my, my chair is the uh, chancellor of another university. I mean, we, we talk and think about it a, a lot, the important role. Uh, and we really, I mean, I'm hoping that someone who's watching this today, will, you know, will be joining the bank and aspires to, you know, occupy very senior leadership roles uh, at CBA. And on the other side of that, I really kicked myself for, 
a couple of years in particular after I left. Um, and actually, the, the chairman of the bank uh, in about 2012 said to me, you know, it's actually, the, I know you think it was the dumbest thing you've done, uh, but actually it probably ended up being a really good thing because I, you know, I probably recommitted to the level of the organisation that few people really do because I, I really missed it. And I really cared about it. And when you go and you, and I just, when I came back, I was probably even more, you know, passionate and enthusiastic about the, the role uh, CBA has and the potential and, frankly, the, the, the people as well. And on return, you know, from 2012, you're given the retail bank to run. You know, half the profits of the of CBA come from the retail bank, you know, the vast array of digital products that were being developed. Um, you know, how how did you get your head around managing at that scale, you know, that size of operation? And how, as uh, the leader of that part of the bank, are you confident that you really know what is going on? How do you get across the detail of it all? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things. I mean, it, it felt like a big step at the time. I uh, remember going through that process for the, for the role as well. And it's... it's um, it's a very important part of CBA, not just from the earnings profile, but just of who we are as an organisation institution. And I felt you know, a lot of responsibility uh, leading that business. And when you go from, I probably had led about 1,000 people before then, you go to about you know, 13,000, 14,000. Um, I mean, I knew parts of it, even though I hadn't worked in the retail bank, I'd worked in business banking. So and I knew some of the people. Um, but yeah, look, I do think a lot about when you go into a role like that, how to best prepare and what sort of systems and processes and like anything you're trying to think and work on uh, the right team and, you know, strategically what you want to do. I mean, I sort of feel as well in terms of obviously you want to, and there's lots of different ways you can set up you know, formal mechanisms in terms of reporting, et cetera. But I always feel like there's no substitute for just going out uh, and spending time and not just visiting. I, I um I used to spend, particularly in the sort of first few years, probably a week, I'd go and serve uh, in branch, go on in, uh, in the call centres. I, I mean, I'm lousy. It's, it's a really tough mm. job. Uh, you know, as a, a week uh, teller, concierge, uh, customer service specialist, um, I really enjoyed it. You learn a lot, not just about, because also sort of a day one, people are a little bit freaked out, but usually by day two or day three, you really feel like you're part of the team. Um, you know, a couple of days I didn't balance when I was selling, so <laughs> a few errors. But uh, people were very kind, and, you know, when customers come up, and one of them when I was out at actually Westfield Parramatta, and the customer came up and said to me, aren't you a little old to be a trainee? <laughs> I had someone standing right behind me, and so they thought that was that was hilarious. So, you know, you, you learn a lot from, I think, really experiencing, getting to getting to know the, the team and the business. But it's also, I mean, we serve millions of customers. Um, and so you, you never know everything, and that's never an excuse. If something goes wrong, I mean, you're accountable for it. Yeah. When, when you look back on it now, and particularly through the, the lens of the findings of the Royal Commission, what, what, do you, what do you think you'd do differently now? I mean, some of the criticism was around whether the sensitivity to risk was right in a whole lot of uh, services that were being provided to the public. If you look back from the experience of the Royal Commission to your time running the retail bank. How do you reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways. And I think one of the, I guess you'd say the benefits having appeared and the 
2012 commission and also being CEO during that year, I spent an enormous amount of time on it, reading and going through individual case studies. I mean, at a macro level, certainly there wasn't a good appreciation of what we call non-financial risks. So, I mean, if you think about the, the bank for more than 100 years, its core business was really you know, taking deposits, lending money, and there's a very strong sort of capability and DNA around uh, credit risk in particular. And you'd even say sort of market risk as you go through the GSC. But I, we didn't fully appreciate the risks that came from particularly uh, what we call sort of conduct or non-financial risk, compliance risk. I think we certainly underinvested in our capabilities to be compliant with uh, AML CTF, which was a big problem for us in uh, in 2017. And so I really, the, the, I mean, the breadth of both capability, the level of focus, the level of investment that we've made into non-financial risk management, then there was a couple of areas of our, you know, our, our business, particularly in wealth management and you know, across the industry. Uh, we just, we didn't, you know, we didn't do a good job of the way we were serving customers, complying with legislation that came in uh, around uh, a FOFA in 2014, 2015. So, I mean, there's lots of different things. And then within each case study, uh, which I had sort of seven in my uh, witness statement for the Royal Commission, there's individual lessons that you learn. Uh, around sort of incentive design and you know, the way things in a large organization, because you serve so many customers, if you're really not looking, you know, you can be um, you can be fooled by averages and you're not really seeing you know the worst experience that a customer is receiving and and why are they receiving that and what's leading to that and probably a, you know, a much greater and deeper appreciation of all of the things that can go wrong. Um. The separate to the Royal Commission was the Austrac case where tens of thousands of breaches of anti-money laundering laws um, was laid before the CBA and then, of course, had a big impact at Westpac as well. The story's told that um, when the documentation landed at the CBA, you headed out to the Parramatta Operations Centre to, to understand in detail yourself uh, what exactly had happened and how those processes work. Can you take us through um, what your mindset was at that time? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have an understanding operationally of it. There's a centralised team that supported the whole group. And you probably uh, have noticed, based on our conversation, I'm relatively hands-on. And when, uh, when that happened, which was the 3rd of August 2017, um, it was obviously a... You know, a very deep blow to the organisation because, of course, the, you know, the legal implications and ramifications, but we also, we just felt like we'd let so many people uh, down. And so part of it was just I wanted to actually understand and try and reconcile what was in the, the statement of claim to our operational uh, processes. I've probably, uh, I've read, I'd say, every document on AML uh, going back more than 10 years. Um, so it's, it's a topic that I'm very familiar with. Um, Austrac has claimed significant careers. We saw the impact at Westpac and, and at CBA, it was really only within days of um, all the allegations being aired that it was announced that Rev would be leaving the bank. I think a lot of the speculation at the time 
was that inevitably CBA would need to go outside to find its new uh, leadership. There had been these issues that had uh, dealt with and there was, uh, I think, high expectation that the next CEO um, was not within the bank. Um, but against the odds, you got the CEO job. Can you tell us how you positioned yourself um, as the insider who was an outsider to get that job? Yeah, it's clearly not the ideal uh, setup for uh, an internal. And I mean, you're right, the media speculation was certainly that the board would go external. I mean, lots of people that I had spoken to thought that that was a, you know, a far more likely scenario. There's only you know, a couple of people very close to me that I that uh, thought that I had a you know a really good chance of being able to, to get that. I mean, I think like anything, um, and it's a challenge. I mean, any recruitment process can be um, challenging. A CEO process uh, is in terms of there's multiple stages. Realistically, as well, it, it plays out, in, particularly under those circumstances, it, in full daylight. I mean, often, you know, it's a very well, I mean, in a perfect world, the CEO sort of announced, most people didn't even know that the current CEO was moving on, and, you know, a lot of things are sort of happening behind the scenes. Uh, this, this is a process that clearly was, um, you know, in full public view uh, and went, you know, stretched over many months, and there were multiple elements to it and so you know as you'd appreciate there's a there's a range of different uh stages from you know testing and interviews meetings with the uh with the board i mean look i guess my approach overall particularly to the presentation because i mean generally at some point you, you present to the board um and you really have to try and demonstrate you know not only why you're the right person for the role but what you'll do in the role and so i, I think i had something like Basically, there were sort of three things that I tried to talk about. You know, one, a current diagnosis of CBA and someone who you know, knows it well. And I think both the very strong elements as well as inevitably areas for improvement. And two was sort of, uh, you know, what I'd do in the role, what the priorities would be and why. And then three was, um, you know, leadership, how I'd work with the board. Uh, the sorts of things that you know they could expect from me, and um, you know, I, I, I did my best, and you know I'm very fortunate to to have been given the role. I mean, it's enormous uh, privilege and, and responsibility. I'm very grateful for the trust that the board put in me. One one of the really interesting things I think about the changing nature of banking and banking CEOs is, as a breed, they've got younger. And I mean, you were appointed at the age of 42. And, and I think for generations to run a big bank, that would have been the pinnacle of a career. How do you think of it in terms of longevity of leadership? Um, that, that, I mean, do you realistically think or aspire to do this for a long period of time? How do you think through uh, this job and this challenge in the structure of what you would hope would be a long and successful career? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I approach it insofar as I just want to do the, do the best job I can every day. I, I mean, I, I feel like it's you know, the most important thing I'll ever do. And so I'm hugely focused on doing it well. So I don't really think about it in terms of, uh, you know, in time frames. Obviously, that's a mutual decision. I mean, I'd, uh, you know, I'd like to do it for as long as I'm the best person uh, for the role. Um, but, you know, 
obviously that's going to be contingent on a whole range of different uh, factors around performance and uh, for the board and you know, for me and the board and particularly with the with the chair to discuss. But given I'm you know, sort of two and a half years in, I've really been extremely focused on uh, you know, a range of different sort of challenges, but also opportunities over the over the last couple of years and really making sure we're thinking for the long term. On any criteria, it's been an eventful two and a half years. You've had the Royal Commission at the front end and now you've got uh, COVID-19. How do you think through the bank's response to COVID-19 and your responsibilities towards your shareholders, you know, your owners, but also your customers and also your staff? And tell, tell us a little bit about what it's what like it's leading like. the bank in the midst of the pandemic crisis. Yeah, it's obviously you know, just been such a tough year for Australia and for our for everyone from the start of the year with the terrible bushfires uh, and then we went into I mean obviously global pandemic and particularly from March onwards um, you know lots of ambiguity uh, huge uncertainty um, things just changing very rapidly I'm, I'm very fortunate I'd been in the role then by for, for a couple of years I think I wouldn't like that in my first year, um, you know, build a very good, you know, trusting relationship both ways with, with the board who we work extremely well with and with my with my team. Uh, a lot of focus, as you said, on um, how to help best support customers and both the role as leading uh, CBA but also chairing uh, the banking association. And I have to say, I mean, the support across the whole industry, people have been extremely aligned, united, very decisive. Um, which has made things, um, I think, very, very good and constructive for the for the banking uh, industry, and working closely with government and regulators, as you'd expect, and lots of different iterations to that. Um, you know, huge amount of communication with our people. We have some you know, fantastic people who just do an amazing job. Really care about their customers. Uh, we've remained open right the way through, including in Melbourne, where we're an essential service. And you know, the level of support, I think, pride as well with in the organisation, you know, a lot of our people, the most important thing coming to work every day is doing the best job possible to support their customers because they, and they really care about that. So I think seeing the, the bank play an important role in responding to COVID and we really want to be a leader in Australia's recovery, I, I think that's been a, a huge source of you know, conviction and uh, motivation inside the organisation, recognising that you know, we're only six months in, uh, there's going to be some challenging times ahead, certainly uh, into calendar 2021. There's just so many different variables that, that are going to shape that. Um, you said to a parliamentary inquiry, I think the other day, that the size of the economic contraction is less severe than we first anticipated, but we face a long and uneven recovery. Um, one of the questions that's come through is around property prices and a suggestion that they may have been artificially held during to all, due to all the support infrastructure that's been put in place. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on how the property market may uh, hold up or the stresses it will be under as we go into 2021? Yeah, I mean, so far, I mean, the property market's been more robust uh, and resilient than, than we'd expected, certainly. Uh, from March, and I think by the time May came around, we put out our third quarter results, and we have to contemplate multiple economic scenarios as a financial institution. But our base case was a fall of around uh, 10 or 12 percent uh, for house prices, and of course that then 
differs uh, quite significantly between different capital cities, regions, houses, apartments. Um, it's been less than we expected. Uh, in fact, our economics team just last week uh, increased their forecast insofar as they think house prices will now fall less than that, probably about half that. There's been a number of other economic forecasts that have, have increased um, over the last week or two. Some of the jobs data was much stronger than we ever expected. I think there's definitely, we expect to see some pockets of softness. Uh, in terms of um, the housing market and volume, so new listings that are coming onto the market, uh, and we can obviously see the application for, for finance. Uh, I mean, high, certainly higher than we'd expected. Um, we do think there'll be pockets of, of, of softness, but it's been uh, more robust. And some of the government policies deliberately designed, uh, less so on the sort of income side, although of course that's played a, a huge role more broadly in terms of you know, job keeper, job seeker, but some of the home builder, some of the incentives at a federal and state level, which have brought forward some of the demand. Uh, and so we've seen strong, support in you know, first home buyer, owner-occupier, but some of the inner-city inner areas, particularly for rental markets, because so many of the inner-city apartments are dependent on uh, people who are temporary or you know, recent arrivals in Australia. So we do see some softness uh, in some of those markets. Uh, Matt, in a few minutes, we're just going to go to some uh, quick-fire questions that have come in from audience members, and, and there are more questions coming through now. I just wonder, as you um, think of the responsibility that, that comes with running CBA at this time of uh, great national challenge, whether, you, in fact, you think that CBA is different to the other banks because it was once owned by everyone. I, I sometimes draw a parallel between, you know, CBA and Telstra and Qantas, now all privately owned and run companies, but once publicly owned. And, and if you're my age, you remember the Commonwealth Bank uh, money box, the school banking. It, it was really very much part of everyone's life and became very much part of uh, many people's share portfolios when, when the bank floated. Is it different to run CBA? And is more asked or more expected in a sense of public leadership of a CBA CEO than other banks, do you think? Some parts are hard for me to answer because obviously having only been in CBA, we, we definitely consider and we talk about uh, CBA being the bank for all Australians. And if you look at the mandate by which we were established, you know, in December 1911, it was all around that. And we've been at various times before it was separated out, the central bank. So we're not just the largest bank, but I think there's a very important place and role for the Commonwealth Bank uh, and is really is the, the bank for Australia. Um, and so certainly an enormous amount of responsibility comes with that and our, and our actions, uh, of course, really, really matter. And so, you know, I, we, we recognise that. We certainly expect to be held to, you know, at, at times or maybe always a higher standard uh, in a number of different ways. And look, because of our size as well, then it, it really does matter in terms of you know, we're supporting the housing market, we're growing above system. You know, we're more than 25%, we're almost 30% of uh, the deposit market. Uh, you know, similarly, our support for, for businesses over the next six to 12 months is really going to matter. Uh, we originated more than 50% of the government guaranteed SME loans. I mean, definitely uh, the actions that we, that we take really, clearly have a, have a big impact. Uh, as do the big four, but of the biggest of the big four, and I think to your point, um, 
you know, and I can remember speaking with customers in 2017 uh, through some of the events that, that we've just spoken about. And you can see there's I mean, genuine emotion and affection and either anger because for many people, myself included, you know, you grow up in Australia, the brand, uh, the, the money box, the branch, you know, there's a lot of sort of a special connection with those big brands in Australia and we're fortunate to, to consider more customers uh, than any other uh, financial institution. And so, you know, we, we recognise how important it is to serve each of them purposefully and well, but also the broader country. Matt, um, now it's time for me to audition to be the next host of Hard Quiz. I have questions. We have two minutes. The clock will run. Okay. So uh, quick questions, quick answer to these. These have come through for our audience. What's your favourite thing about being a CEO? Probably the opportunity to, to make a real difference to people's lives, other people who work in the bank, but also our millions of customers. And what's the worst thing about being a CEO? Well, those are some of the things that we touched on when something goes wrong. I mean, it's the nature of our business model in, in banking. Uh, it, it can have significant implications, even when the bank hasn't done some, hasn't done anything wrong, but just the, the sheer distress that's associated with people unable to pay back loans or you know, being in a very difficult situation, it, that's, uh, it's very tough to see that. When you can travel again, what's the first place outside New South Wales you want to go? Well, I had a whole, I was trying to go to WA in these school holidays. Uh, so I'd be pretty much happy with any of uh, the uh, other states in Australia to, to, uh, to, to get away. Good news on South Australia, I think. It is. There. Um, what, what advice would you give to people graduating university and entering into the job market in this current climate? I mean, sort of uh, understanding the, the difficulties in the current market, but I'm just a huge believer in you know, pursuing something that you really care about, uh, doing something that not only you, you're good at, but also something that you're really going to enjoy and that you're passionate about. And I think it makes an enormous difference uh, to be invested and to really care about the work that you're doing. Our audience wants this question answered uh, from a senior banker. What's your strategy around pocket money? Uh, yeah, pay pay some pocket money, but also linked to performance around house duties. Uh, do you have a secret skill or trick you want to admit to to our audience today? No, I do not. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, the final two questions here. Favourite restaurant in Sydney? Uh, not a specific one. Uh, depends. You know, I've gone to an Italian restaurant in a couple of nights' time, so not, not one that sort of sticks out. And last book that you read that you recommend? Uh, Ride of a Lifetime of Iger. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic book. Yeah. Fantastic book, yeah. Um, tell me, as a CEO, um, one of the things that you've clearly been willing to do is to stand up publicly for issues. There were big ads running the newspapers the other day, sponsored by CBA around domestic violence. You stood up for sexual equality. You're a member of Male Champions of Change. Tell me about what you think is the public responsibility around these social issues for an organisation and for you as the CEO. Yeah, I mean, look, clearly we, we play an important role as a, you know iconic organisation and large employer, and, and particularly in some of those areas, if you talk about domestic and family violence, uh, 
one of the reasons that we've really focused on that is, uh, you know, of, of course, it's a huge issue, uh, sadly. But there's also a very close connection between you know, physical violence and financial abuse. And so I think it's an area where we've, we've got a clear role and responsibility. There's a number of things that we are doing that I think make a, a really significant difference, not just to the individuals, but also to the, to the broader uh, community. And, you know, some of those things we've rolled out through the ABA. And so and sometimes, um, you know, you've just got to take a stand on different issues. Clearly, uh, some are more controversial than, than others. I mean, generally, discussions around uh, you know, climate, energy policy tend to be, um, as you know, uh, well, Marseille tend to be some, some challenging and some quite different points of view uh, across the community and our stakeholders. Yeah. Do, do you, um, uh, Ian Narev, uh, when he uh, led Commonwealth Bank, talked about um, The Wife Drought, a book written by Annabel Crabb, yeah. which talked about what the environment was that possibly held back women into rising in a position of leadership. And one of the things that Annabelle has pointed out that if we're interviewing a, a woman executive or a woman CEO, the female CEO, um, the question's always asked, well, how do you manage? You know, you've got a young family, you've got kids, how do you manage and balance that? And I think Annabelle has said, that's not a question that's often asked uh, to men in leadership roles. So let's ask that question to you. It's come from our audience. How do you manage and enjoy the demands of family life with the depressing uh, time commitments of being a CEO? What are the sacrifices and the trade-offs that you're conscious of making and how do you deal with that? Yeah, first of all, uh, Annabelle's you know, very talented and it's a great book and she came in several years ago and talked to a few of us uh, over dinner about that. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got a very supportive family. Um, and it's, it, it can look, as you'd expect, it can be challenging at, at times, uh, trying to make the right. You, you definitely miss out on some things. Uh, you can't be there all the time. Obviously, we're all doing a lot less travel at the moment, so that's, uh, so that's helping. Um, and so I, I'm very well supported by, by my wife, my, uh, my three kids. I try to get to as many things as I, as I can. Um, but, you know, you, you do feel the trade-offs and the, the challenges at, at times as well because, uh, you know, the reality is, um, you know, things will, will come up at work and, you know, th there's no one else to deal with it if it comes to me. And so that's just the, that's the responsibility that comes with the job. Um, there's a question here about your, your morning routine. And I know you take health and fitness carefully and, and take it seriously and, and as do other members of your executive team how, how do you how do you um, prepare to be at the peak the peak condition physically to take on the kind of challenges you have yeah I mean a, a lot of elements I track pretty closely uh, so you know rest and recovery particularly sleep makes a big difference uh, and then you know exercise diet uh, probably really important. So I mean, trying to keep all of those things in balance, of course, spending quite time with family as well. But I mean, I like to yeah, exercise in the morning as often as I can. And, you know, I monitor it pretty closely because I just sort of feel like it's, you can't possibly be at your best if you're, you know, exhausted. And people can see that in you. I think, you know, your judgment, your decision making is impaired. Uh, and, and so, you know, part of the role is trying to make sure that you're always in the best possible condition to try and perform the job as best you can. Um, it's said that you pay 
close attention to leading sports coaches and kind of learn from their insights when it comes to managing uh, top teams. What, what have you learnt from observing top uh, sport coaches? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky in this job. I get to meet lots of interesting people in both uh, business, as you'd expect, uh, you know, political life, but also, yeah, sports coaches, mainly because then what interests me about it is peak performance and you know, how they think about peak performance and also how do they get peak performance from those that they lead. And it's it's different, clearly, uh, coaching a team than it is leading a large organisation. But some of those principles that you and I were just talking about, you know, uh, I've you know, spent time with uh, high-performance coaches uh, domestically and internationally uh, in and around their mindset. Sometimes, you know, I've spent time with sports coaches trying to understand, especially those who've been doing it for a long time, uh, you know, how they – and it's a, it's a tough job as an elite coach in, in Australia, particularly in some of the codes, as you'd understand. There's an enormous amount of, uh, you know, media scrutiny and also just sort of curious about how they balance um, – sorts of things that they know work versus looking for more and you know newer and innovative uh, challenges how they manage all of the you know people issues how they sort of set and lead uh culture some of that's transferable and some of it's not but i always just find it really interesting just different perspectives on uh leadership and you know, trying to um have an organization with the culture that you like and performing at its best I think one of the uh, upsides of being locked down is looking at some of those great documentaries that have given insights into elite sporting teams and coaches uh, that are available now, including the Australian cricket team and a new one on Tottenham Hotspurs and others. Do you think of yourself as the coach of your executive team? And do you think of your key executives as talent, uh, like a talent on a sporting team that you're trying to get strategies to get the best out of? I mean, I think it's quite different, but I, you know, I've, watched a number of, I've watched the, the tests, I haven't watched the Tottenham Hotspurs, but I've read a number of the sort of you know, books in and around that. I think it's quite different, um, but I do think there's some similarities, certainly in terms of the, you know, the standards that you want to set and the direction. And there's, you know, there's elements clearly of uh, coaching in any leadership uh, role, but of course, it's not just the people in the team, it's all their teams and their teams underneath them. And so, um I do certainly see some similarities uh, and, you know, you try to take anything out or take something out of um, people who are performing well and have got a lot of experience. I, I'm, I'm yet to meet many people in that sort of positional role where I don't feel like there's something that I've learned and I can really take away from it. And, and finally, we're about to, to head back to Professor Stiles to, to wrap up. But as we look ahead now, Given what we've been through in 2020, the most uncertain and unpredictable year that any of us have ever been through, um, the Commonwealth Bank is an indispensable part of the lives of millions of Australians. As we cast ahead and you think through what the next year or so might look like, uh, what concerns you most, what are you apprehensive about and what are you optimistic about as we go into 2021? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm very optimistic long-term for the the performance and also, um, you know, the outlook for Australia as a country. I think we're uniquely placed for a whole range of different uh, reasons. There's no question we're going to be challenged in the next few, few years. I think we're in a much better place than just about any other country in the world, but it's going to take you know, quite a bit of navigating through some of those incredibly uncertain times. Um, 
you know, I, I do think we want to play a very active role in Australia's recovery, and some of that's going to be supporting customers in the near term through the challenges that uh, we get likely to face. We're sort of forecasting an unemployment rate of somewhere near 9%, depending on the participation rate at the end of this year. A lot of the economic policy will be designed to reduce that unemployment rate and create jobs. And we want to be able to support industries and businesses uh, and individuals to be able to recover from, as you said, what's been a very, very challenging year. Thanks so much for your time today at Meet the CEO, Matt. We've valued your insights uh, into your remarkable career at the bank, but also the insights of the weight and burden of responsibility, the stewardship uh, that you have to provide now and leading so many of us through uh, the challenges of this remarkable year. Thanks for your time today. And now we hand over to Professor Chris Stiles. Well, thanks, Mark. And thanks very much to our guest, uh, Matt Common. Uh, once again, we all appreciate the time you've taken out from your very busy schedules to be with us today. Um, and like all our Meet the CEO events, uh, I've learned a great deal listening to Matt's leadership journey uh, from career management to ensuring you're always hands-on. Uh, I'm also sure there are a lot of people who are listening who are uh, we're listening very hard to how Matt pitched for the CEO job and took lots of notes. Um, I think we also took uh, and appreciated hearing the insights into leading a very large, complicated organisation through extraordinary and challenging times when things go wrong. Uh, and I'm sure there's also a great deal of interest in uh, his uh, performance-based pocket money policy. Um, so thanks to everyone uh, who was uh, tuned in today. Um, the 2,252 people or so that were tuned in. So thanks very much. I'm sure you too have learned something uh, and that there's much for you to reflect on as a result of uh, being part of today's events. As I mentioned earlier, um, the webinar has been recorded and will be shared with everyone who registered for the event uh, over the next few days. And if you do have a few spare minutes now, there'll be a link to a feedback survey in the chat. And we, of course, would appreciate any feedback you have on this afternoon's webinar so we can uh, continue to learn how to produce the kind of events that work best for you. So I know we've all got a busy afternoon. So uh, uh, to wrap up, I hope you all enjoyed today's Meet the CEO. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next time and I wish you all a great afternoon.